Hello, and welcome to the teaching ministry of Impact Family Church. For more information, including service times and directions, or to find out more about us, you can visit our website at www.impactfamilychurch.com. We trust you'll be blessed by today's message. Third John, verse number two, it says, Beloved, I pray that you may prosper in all things and be in health just as your soul prospers. Notice here there are three kinds of prosperity listed in this verse. There's spiritual prosperity, that's represented by your soul prospering. Then there's physical prosperity, that is indicated by, he says that I pray that you'd be in health. And then there's natural or material prosperity because he said, I pray that you may prosper in all things. This word prosper in the original Greek is used in other places in the New Testament to particularly refer to money or to material blessing. And of course, that's the way we generally use the word today. When we talk about someone being prosperous, uh, you can prosper like this verse says in all things. There are a lot of different kinds of prosperity. He identifies uh, not just material prosperity, but physical prosperity, spiritual prosperity. But generally, when we just, without without. Uh, identifying anything in particular, when you talk about prosperity, most people understand that that means material, financial well-being. Amen? Now, he says that he prayed that they may prosper in all things and be in health just as your soul prospers. Notice every other area of prosperity depends upon spiritual prosperity. That has to be number one. Let's go on down to verse number three. He said, for I rejoice greatly when brethren came and testified of the truth that is in you, just as you walk in truth. I have no greater joy than to hear that my children walk in the truth. Notice all forms of prosperity are associated with walking in the truth. You will only be able to prosper according to God or by God to the degree that you walk in the truth or you walk in the word of God. You have to, in order to enjoy God's prosperity, you have to be anchored in the word of God. The word of God must be first placed in in your life and you must walk in it and that's where prosperity comes from. Now notice that in verse number five, he says, beloved, you do faithfully whatever you do for the brethren and for strangers, that is, these were traveling ministers, who have borne witness of your love before the church, if you send them forward on their journey in a manner worthy of God, you will do well, because they went forth for his namesake, taking nothing from the Gentiles. We therefore ought to receive, the margin says, support such ministers that we may become fellow workers for the truth. Notice that every form of prosperity begins with spiritual prosperity. Every form of prosperity is the result of being anchored in the word of God. And then notice the next thing that flows out of that is giving to support the ministry. So he moved right into the traveling ministers that, that itinerated uh, all around the, uh, the, uh, the, the areas where the church was in those days. And he said, it's good to support them. So you can see that prosperity is tied to putting God first and to support the ministry that he has put in the church, amen? God must be first in your life. 
You can't have anything before God and have God prosper you. Now, you might prosper on your own putting other things first for a while. See, the Bible talks about gathering a treasure to put into a bag with holes in it. If you, if you are not putting God first place in your life, you may gather, but the enemy will take it away. Amen. But if you want to prosper God's way and have his blessing on your life, then he has to be first and nothing can come before him. Not your money, not your prosperity, not anything can come before God. Amen. In Colossians 3, you don't have to turn there. It says, if we have been raised together with Christ, let us set our affections on things above, not on things on this earth. So when I'm talking about prosperity, we started this series way back uh, several weeks ago, a couple months ago, talking about the Bible warnings about wealth. And that's something that is very rarely covered in word of faith circles or churches that believe in prosperity. They very rarely cover the warnings. There are some serious warnings in the Bible, both from Jesus and from the Apostle Paul, as well as in the Old Testament. There are some serious warnings about wealth and being rich and so forth. And we need to take those things into consideration and judge ourselves. And so we cover those in order to lay that foundation first. And then I said, well, just like there are, you know, you can't be, you can't present a balanced approach to prosperity without covering this side. But see, it seems that the church gets in the ditch on one side or the other. The traditional church for, for centuries has been on the ditch, has been in the ditch on the side that God doesn't want you to have anything. And so they only focus on the warnings about uh, you know uh, uh, gathering up treasure for yourself and the love of money is the root of all evil and they focus on those things. Well, those things are important. But if you only focus on one side, on that side, then you're gonna develop a poverty mentality. Well, on, if you get on the other side and, and focus on the blessing, you get into a, a uh, 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 mentality where it's all about you and gathering up goods for yourself and you become very materialistic and very vain. And in effect, you're doing what Colossians says not to do. You're setting your affection not on things above, but on things on this earth. Well, we need to stay in the middle. Like I said, there are some serious warnings, but there are some serious promises. And the promises are just as serious as the warnings, just as important. Or you can flip that around and you can say the warnings are just as important as the promises. We need to stay right down the middle of the road and see what the Bible says about this topic. And, and, but remember that everything has to be set in this framework that we are to set our affections on things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of the Father. In other words, all of the things that flow from him his will, his plan, his salvation, his grace, his uh, uh, work, his ministry, his passion, everything, that's where our affection needs to be. Our affection does not need to be on things on this earth. And if you can make that, that distinction, if you can live that way where you can use the blessings of God here but not let them grab your affections, not let them control your life, God will lavish upon you all the blessings you can imagine because he knows that he can use you to share those blessings in getting the gospel out and helping other people and just as being a testimony of the goodness of God. 
Amen. So God wants to bless us. Amen. In Matthew, we know this. This is a familiar verse or passage in Matthew 6. He said, do not worry about what, are you gonna, what you're going to eat or what you're going to drink or what you're going to wear or what you're... And you could expand that to any area of need in the natural realm. Where you're going to work, how are you going to provide for your family, how are you going to... Uh, where are you going to live, all of the things in the natural world. He said, do not worry about these things. He said, because your father in heaven takes care of all of nature and they don't strive, they don't plan, they don't sow, they don't build and your father feeds all of them. He feeds the birds of the air. He causes the lilies of the field to grow up in all manner of splendor. And he says, if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is burned up in the furnace, Will he not much more clothe you? That means God wants you to wear nice stuff. Amen. Whatever your style is, God wants you to wear nice stuff. Amen. He doesn't want his, his, his children in rags. Now, I know there are some people here, I won't call them out, but I know there are some people here who like secondhand stores. They just prefer that. Listen, if you like that, there's nothing wrong with that. Go for it. But God doesn't require that of anybody. In fact, he said, for all of these things, this is in Matthew 6, he said, all of these things the Gentiles seek after. Well, I've never seen lines outside the secondhand store on Black, is it Black Friday? Black Friday, the day after Thanksgiving. I've never seen gangs and gangs of people lined up outside the secondhand store. No, they're all outside the nice stores. Amen, they're at the mall, they're at the night. They want the new, most people want new things. If you like, if you like old stuff, that's fine. Lori likes Doug, I mean, you know. <laughs> if you like that, that's fine. But the point is, God doesn't require you to live a second-hand life and have a second-hand mentality. Amen. He said, all the Gentiles seek all these things. And he said, then he said, and your father knows you need those things. That means you need the nice stuff. Yeah. Amen. And, uh, and he said, but here, here, here is the, the, uh, the underlying point. He said, but seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things will be added to you. All these things. Now, the way Jesus worded that, he could have said, seek first the kingdom of God and I'll give you all these things. But the, it, at least to my mind, I don't know if you see it this way or not, but to my mind, when Jesus said, seek first the kingdom of God and all these things will be added to you, that to me speaks of progression. And we found out from the scripture that, that godly prosperity is progressive. Remember, remember Isaac had said that, that he began to prosper, he continued prospering until he became very prosperous. And that's the will of God. That's the plan of God. Prosperity is progressive. Amen? Praise the Lord. Now, uh, we found out that prosperity is the covenant right of every believer. Not only is it the will of God in a general sense that God wants his children to, to prosper, 
God has provided prosperity in the, in the uh, redemptive work of the Lord Jesus Christ. He purchased our prosperity. That means it is a covenant right. It belongs to us. Not because of who we are, but because of whose we are. God wants us to prosper. In Galatians 3, we've looked at all these scriptures before. In Galatians 3, 13, it says, Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law. Well, if you go back and look at the law, he's talking about the law, he's talking about the Old Testament law. If you go back and look at the Old Testament law, you'll find out that the curse of the law, that is the curse of disobeying God's law, was essentially, and there's a lot of subcategories under each one of these, you know, you can, you can identify a lot of different things, but there are three primary areas where, where uh, the curse of the law uh, manifested. First of all was spiritually. God said, the day you eat this fruit, you will die. Spiritual death followed in time by natural death. So death is the first uh, curse that comes upon people for disobeying God's law. Secondly, sickness and disease. All through the Old Testament, when the children of Israel were disobedient, they experienced sickness and disease. In fact, sickness and disease wasn't in the plan of God for humanity. It only came in through sin. And so uh, we see identified, clearly identified in the law that part of the curse of the law would be sickness in your life. And then the third area, there's three broad categories here, the third area is poverty. One of the curses of the law, if you look through the Old Testament, you'll see God said, if you obey my, my commandments and do what is right, you'll be blessed, you'll have everything, you'll just prosper, you, you will have an abundance. And he said, but if you break my law, he said, poverty will come upon you. You'll be ripped off everywhere you turn. So poverty is part of the curse of the law. Well, Paul said Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law. That means we are redeemed from the curse of poverty. Poverty ought not show up in our life. I said poverty should not show up in our lives. We should not be a poverty-minded people or live below God's plan and provision of prosperity because he provided prosperity for us. And then he went on to say, Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law that the blessing of Abraham might come upon his children. Well, the blessing of Abraham, again, was several uh, different things. It was a spiritual blessing. It was a physical blessing, but it was also very distinctly a financial or material blessing. It said that Abraham was rich, and then it said he was very rich in gold and silver and, and cattle and flocks and so forth. And so part of the blessing of Abraham is riches. Now, a lot of people have the idea that prosperity... Uh, as a result of obeying God, that that's more of an Old Testament concept, that yes, God did promise people in the Old Testament that he, they would prosper, but you don't see that in the New Testament. Well, you certainly do because Galatians 3.14 is in the New Testament. And not only that, it doesn't just apply to the Jews because he said that the blessing of Abraham may come upon the, the who? The Jews? The Gentiles. That the blessing of prosperity would come upon the Gentiles who are in union with Christ Jesus. Amen. Now go with me over to 2 Corinthians 8. We're going to look at this verse of Scripture again because this has such, uh, has been presented in such a, uh, uh, a false way. And so it takes some, some time to weed wrong 
teaching out, but you have to do it according to the word of God. I mean, if a tradition is true, then it's true whether it's tradition or not, if it's true. But if it's not true, we need to know that and we need to correct our thinking, amen? In Second uh, Corinthians, did I tell you chapter nine? Chapter eight, very good, verse nine. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ that though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor, that you through his poverty might become rich. Now, most people read that, and in their mind, they immediately think that this is talking about spiritually, that though Jesus was rich spiritually, he became poor, that we through his spiritual poverty might become rich spiritually. And uh, the reason people do that is because no, uh, uh, very few people have ever really looked at the New Testament to find out what Jesus' life was like. Now, see, people believe this, that even though in this chapter, this chapter is talking about money and it's talking about poverty and it's talking about wealth. It, that's all in chapter 8 and chapter 9. He's talking about money. So to take this verse and just spiritualize it would, would be to uh, uh, present it in a way that, that's not consistent with the rest of the chapter. Now, we do know, of course, in English language and any other language, we speak sometimes in a metaphorical sense. We take a, an idea that, that really isn't actually, uh, doesn't actually apply, and we use that to illustrate a point. And so that could be it. But the reason we believe that's it and, and, or people do believe that this is talking spiritually is because they really can't conceive of the idea of Jesus being rich while he was on this earth. Because you see, tradition has projected and portrayed Jesus as being indigent, uh, poor, doing without, just penniless, you know, really little more than a vagabond just not having anything, just traveling around with this ragtag, uh, you know, group of disciples and, and uh, you know, just going from pillar to post. And, and, and uh, this idea of Jesus being poor is based on two passages, really one verse in one passage and then another more lengthy passage. They have the idea that when G, because Jesus was born in a manger, that he was born into poverty so that the parents of Jesus were, were poor, that Jesus was raised up in a very uh, austere, uh, uh, poor, simple, uh, non-affluent life. And uh, we'll look to the other scripture in a minute. They say, you know, that Jesus was born in a manger. Well, if you look at the gospel story, and if you look over in the gospel of Luke where this story is told, it doesn't say that Mary and Joseph sought a place to have Jesus and they sought a manger because they couldn't afford anything better. It says that she laid him in a manger. Now notice this word, because. What does because mean? It means this is the reason. She laid him in a manger because there was no room for them in the end. It does not say they laid him in a manger because they couldn't afford a room. It says that there was no room in the So that is the reason Jesus was, was born and laid in a manger, which was in a, 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 a livestock barn, so to speak, shelter, 
laid in a feeding trough. And, and the reason for that was not because they couldn't afford it. Now listen, somebody said, well, they, they, maybe that's just one of the reasons. Maybe, maybe they couldn't afford it, but there was also no room in the inn. But you see, if that's the case, the Bible would have said that they laid him in a manger because they didn't have the money and there was no room. But when you, see, I, my wife and I talk about this all the time. She, you know, sometimes something will come up and you know how you are, all of us are. We, we have one reason for doing something, but we really, we really don't want to say the real reason. So we come up with an alternative reason that is valid. It's true, it's valid, but it's really not the reason. You know, it's just a contributing factor. And sometimes my wife, you know, I, we, we laugh about it all the time. She'll we'll say, she says, well, I, you know, we'll just say it, it's because of this, because, you know, this and this is going on. And I always say, no, honey, that may be true, but the real reason is this right here. See, sometimes we, we don't want to really be as straightforward as we ought to be. See, I know as a pastor and dealing with people, it's easy for me to say, well, you know, uh, you know there are the other reasons because it's too much in somebody's face to say, no, the real reason is I don't believe that and it's wrong. So we want to say something else. There is a level of dishonesty in that. Isn't that right? Because if, if the real reason didn't exist, those other reasons wouldn't cause you to take that action. Well, when it says they laid him in a manger because there was no room for them in the end, period, end of sentence, then it would, be, it, would be, it would have been deceptive to say that if they didn't have the money. Because after all, if they didn't have money for a room, they wouldn't have been looking for a room. If they didn't have money for a room, it wouldn't have mattered whether there was a room or not. They were broke. So because it didn't say that and it specifically said that they laid him in a manger because there was no room, then that's the reason. That's the reason. And further, if you, if you study the life of Jesus, you know when he was about two years old, the wise men came. They came from the east and they were looking for the king of the Jews. They had seen his star. They came and they brought from their, the Bible says they brought of their treasures, gold, frankincense. These were very costly spices and, and things that they brought, particularly the gold. Well, you know, if you're bringing gold for your cousin George, you, you might bring a little gold. But if you're bringing gold for a king, you bring a lot of gold. Isn't that right? They brought of their treasures. His family was suddenly very wealthy. Right after that, we know that uh, God awoke uh, uh, Joseph from a dream, you know, where he had said to go down to Egypt because they're, you know, seeking the, the life of, of your son. So they, they used that money, no doubt, to go into Egypt, but there was surely more left over beyond that. So Jesus had a pretty healthy uh, uh, endowment fund going forward, isn't that right? Now, we have the, uh, the other verse of Scripture, is uh, in Luke where it says that Jesus, you know, the, a man came to Jesus and I'll follow you wherever you go. Go over there with me. That's Luke chapter nine, I think. Somewhere's around there. Hallelujah. Yeah, 
Verse 57, it says, Now it happened as they journeyed on the road that someone said to him, Lord, I will follow you wherever you go. Jesus said to them, or to him, Foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Now this, in coupled with, with the, the uh, uh, story of his birth, had, these two verses of Scripture are the only verses in the Bible that would indicate that Jesus was poor. We've already debunked one because there's nothing in, in the narrative of his birth to indicate he was poor. It's just a tradition. This is the other, and there, like I said, there are only two uh, uh, scriptural uh, arguments that Jesus lived a poor life. This is the second one. He said, I don't have any place to live. Foxes have holes, birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. So they said, well, you see, Jesus was poor. He was homeless. He didn't have anything. He just, you know, just uh, slept out under the stars every night. Well, the problem with that is, is it doesn't take a lot of reading to see the context. That's in verse 57 and 58. Go back to verse 51. Now, it came to pass when the time had come for him, Jesus, to be received up that he steadfastly set his face to go to Jerusalem. Are you reading this? And he sent messengers before his face and as they went, they entered a village of the Samaritans to prepare for him. In other words, they were going to go and find a place for him and the team to stay. Well, how were they going to do that if they were broke? Huh? Says they went there to prepare for him. But they, the Samaritans, did not receive him because his face was set for the journey to Jerusalem. The Samaritans and the Jews were at odds with with each other all the time. And the Samaritans had a real nasty attitude toward Jerusalem. They believed that, 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 uh, the, that God had declared Samaria as the place for people to worship. Remember, Jesus had the discussion about this with the woman at the well. So the Samaritans had a real nasty attitude toward Jerusalem. And so Jesus' team is coming through, but it's clear that they're heading to Jerusalem. And so the Samaritans refused access to him. They refused to receive him. And when his disciples, James and John, saw this, verse 54, they said, Lord, do you want us to command fire to come down from heaven and consume them just as Elijah did? So you can see from their reaction that this was no mild rejection of the Lord Jesus. This wasn't just a a polite, we'd rather not you stay here. They rejected him to such a degree They did it in such a fashion that Peter or James and John got very uh, uh, irate, very angry about it. They said, Lord, you just give the word. We'll call fire out of heaven. They were ticked off. Amen. Jesus answered and rebuked them and said, you do not know what manner of spirit you are of. For the son of man did not come to destroy men's lives, but to save them. And they went to another village. Now it happened as they journeyed on the road. What road? The road to another village. It happened as they journeyed on the road that someone said to him, Lord, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, notice what had just happened. He had just been denied a place to stay in Samaria. 
And so Jesus said, the foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. He was talking about that night. I said, he was talking about that one night. He was talking about that one night. You can see from the context, that's what he was talking about. He had just been refused entrance into Samaria where they were, he sent his disciples to prepare for him, that is to find a place for him, and they didn't let him stay there, so he had nowhere to go that night. Well, that kind of destroys that argument. So there are no other scriptural proof texts are places where you can find in the New Testament that Jesus was poor in his earthly life. It just, they don't exist. But there are all kinds of evidence, there is all kinds of evidence that Jesus was not, in fact, not poor. He was very prosperous. You know, we already uh, uh, discussed the fact that they brought gold and silver, I mean, gold and, and, and myrrh and all of these expensive things to him. Not only that, Jesus, some people said, well, Jesus didn't have any place to live. He didn't have a house. Well, if, go, with me to, go with me to Matthew uh, early in the chapter. Let me find it. Well, hold your place in, in, in Matthew. <laughs> I'll tell you where when I find it. Amen. Hold your place in Matthew 4 and go to Mark 6. I think. Yeah, Mark 6. Remember when Jesus returned? He, Jesus was raised in Nazareth and then when, he, when it was time for him to enter into his ministry, he moved to Capernaum. Now, when he went back to Nazareth, uh, we have the story in, in Mark chapter 6. He, he, he arose from there and came to his own country and his disciples followed him. On the Sabbath he went in to teach and so forth. We'll not go into all that. And verse 3 says, is this not, they, this is what the people said in the, in the synagogue in Nazareth. Is this not the carpenter, the son of Mary, the brother of James, Joseph, Judah, and Simon, and are not his sisters with, here with us? So they, they were offended at him. When he went back to Nazareth, which is where he had been raised and where he lived right up until the time he entered into full-time ministry. In other words, right up until about 30 years of age. For 30 years, he lived in Nazareth. Those couple of years in, in Egypt and so forth. But after his family relocated as a little boy to Nazareth, that's where he was raised. Then he left, and now he's come back. And they said, wait a minute, isn't this the carpenter? And where does he get all these things? Where, what's all these miracles and this wisdom? Is he, he's, just, he's just the carpenter. Well, if Jesus was a carpenter in Nazareth, he had to have had a carpenter shop. What kind of carpenter doesn't have a place for his carpentry? And you can't build something unless you have some place to have tools and, and supplies and, and, and work area. Well, if Jesus had a carpenter shop, he had a home are you listening to me? He, he had to have lived in a, in a home. Some people said, well, Jesus never owned a house. Well, that, the Bible doesn't support that. He had, a, he had a business. He was a businessman. He was in business for himself. He was a carpenter. Well, he had to have had some assets. He had to have had some real estate. 
Now, go with me over to where we looked at. Uh, first, go to Matthew chapter 4. Verse number 12, we're going to back up a little bit. Matthew 4, 12. Now, when Jesus heard that John had been put in prison, he departed to Galilee. And leaving Nazareth, he came and dwelt in Capernaum, which is by the sea in the regions of, in the regions of Zebulun and Naphtali, that it might be fulfilled which was spoken by the prophets, so forth. Leaving Nazareth, he came and dwelt at Capernaum. This is when Jesus began his ministry. He left his home in Nazareth and relocated to Capernaum. Did you know that quite a few modern translations read this passage this way? Leaving Nazareth, he came and made his home in Capernaum. He came and made his home in Capernaum. Well, what does that mean? If if you had assets in Nazareth, if you had real estate, if you had possessions in Nazareth, why would you go to Capernaum and live in a tent city on the outside of town? With all the with all the, the uh, you know the thieves and 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 whoever's out there. I mean if you had a home in one place, why would you not have a home in the next place? He came and made his home in Capernaum. That became his base of operations in Capernaum. So it, 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 it doesn't identify his home, but it says that he made his home. I don't know about you and me, but when we make our home someplace, we're looking for a place to live. Isn't that right? He made his home in Capernaum. Now, what kind of home did he have? Well, I don't know. The Bible doesn't say, but it doesn't say he was poor. But we know this, that he gathered around himself a a band of 12 disciples. And they were on the road much of the time. Now, I said this when it says that Jesus was rich. I don't believe Jesus lived an extravagant and excessive lifestyle because Jesus had a very short mission in life. Three and a half years, it wouldn't have made sense to be encumbered with a lot of things. But to say that he was poor is, is inaccurate because the scripture says he was rich. The only, and again, the only, what, the only reason people want to spiritualize that and say, well, that couldn't be t- saying rich. He couldn't have been rich because we all know he was poor. Well, he wasn't poor. Well, if he wasn't poor, there's no reason to believe he wasn't rich. I said if he wasn't poor, there's no need to believe that he was not rich. We know that, that he had 12 disciples And he was on the road most of the time. He and his 12 disciples traveled constantly. They had a traveling ministry. They went from town, town, city to city, village to village, and they were on the road for three and a half years. You know, it takes some assets to keep a team of 13 people and probably some more. We know there were other followers. We don't know that he provided for them all, but we know he provided for the disciples. They didn't work. Peter and and the others, they said, we have left all and followed you. Now, Peter, James, and John, we know were were prosperous fishermen. They had a a professional commercial fishing business, and they had not one boat but boats. They had partners. So they left a lucrative lifestyle to go to live with Jesus and to travel with him. And like I said, there was at least 13, if not more, 
And you can't keep 13 people on the road for three and a half years unless you've got some assets. It just can't be done. Feeding, housing, uh, uh, clothing, you just can't do it. So Jesus would have had to have had enough resources to fund his organization, his ministry. We know that uh, Jesus, whenever he had financial need, that the miracles of God were always available to him. When it came time to pay the taxes, we, we, we don't know that he didn't have the money, but to demonstrate the provision of God, he sent his disciples to the, to the sea and said, cast in your line, take the first fish and take out of his mouth. They opened that fish's mouth and there was a gold coin there and they were able to pay their taxes. So the point is, Jesus always had what he needed. He always had what he needed. He had a treasurer. Remember Judas? The Bible says there at the end that Judas was a thief, that he often pilfered the, the money bag that Jesus had, that the team had. They, you don't have a treasurer if you're living in Tent City. The people living out in the, in the Tent City on the outside of town, they don't have treasurers. They don't have anything to treasure. Jesus had a treasurer, and not only that, it says that Judas... Uh, had a had a uh, a habit something that he did often he often stole money from the 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 treasury and nobody knew it nobody even missed it well if you've got 38 cents in your treasury and somebody is stealing some of your money you're going to know it isn't that right you go looking for 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 the change in there and you're counting every penny Wait a minute, there's only 27 cent here. What happened to the other uh, 11 cent? Isn't that right? So the only way Judas could have been stealing from the treasury and nobody know it was, would be that there had to have been an abundance there that it, there was so much that they didn't even detect the little that he took or how much he took. Amen? So there are other things. We don't have time to go into any further than that, but there is no scriptural basis for the idea that Jesus was poor. None, none whatsoever. But we have every idea that he had everything he needed. He, it says that, that he frequently, he and his team frequently gave to the poor. He would send the disciples, take some money out of the treasury and go give it to the poor. Jesus did this on a regular basis. Well, you don't give to the poor if you're poor. Isn't that right? You have to have some resources. So again, it says that Jesus, let's go back to 2 Corinthians don't spiritualize it. Just believe what it says. You know, that would just solve so much in the church world if people just believe what the Bible says and not create traditions that are not founded on a clear understanding of the Scriptures. Now, now people have a scriptural basis for the idea that Jesus was poor, but it's not based on a clear understanding of the Scriptures. See, they said, well, he was, you know, he was born in a manger. Well, yeah, but it wasn't because he was poor. It's because it was crowded. Amen. He had no place to lay his head. Yeah, but it wasn't because he didn't have a house. It's because he was out of town and in Samaria, they wouldn't give him a place that night. So when you look at the big picture, those two arguments go away. So let's go back to 2 Corinthians chapter 8. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ that though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor that you through his poverty might become rich. We pointed out the fact that this language in this particular verse, the way it's stated is clearly 
a substitutionary verse. In other words, it's speaking of substitution. Note, compare the, the language here. Hold your place and go back to chapter 5, verse 21. 2 Corinthians five twenty one. For he, God, made him, Christ, who knew no sin, to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in Christ. You see that, that, that identification and substitutions principle in that verse? That Jesus had the righteousness and all we had was sin, but Jesus took our sin so that we could take his righteousness. Well, the same type of argument is made in our text here in chapter 8, verse number 9. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich... Yet for your sakes he became poor that you through his poverty might become rich. Again, <clears throat> it's also just like Galatians 3. Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law that the blessing of Abraham might come upon us. Again, that is a substitutionary premise. So we know in, in 2 Corinthians 8 verse number nine, that this is talking about substitution. This isn't talking about when Jesus came from heaven to the earth and and took on a human form, that's when he became poor. No, because this verse is talking about substitution. This had to have happened at the cross. Just like he, he taking our sin and we taking his righteousness, that's something that happened at the cross. Just like when Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law that the blessing of Abraham might come upon us, that redemption happened at the cross. Well, this verse happened at the cross. Amen. It was, it was only at the cross that Jesus became destitute where he had nothing. They took everything he had. And, and remember, they took his clothes and they cast lots for, for his garment because they didn't want to. It was a seamless garment and they didn't want to tear it apart and divide it among themselves. It was a costly garment. Again, poor people don't have costly garments. I don't see anybody, you know, on death row. I don't see over in, in, in Rayford over there, I don't see the guards gambling for the clothes of the inmates that are, that are going to go to the electric chair. Isn't that right? They're not wearing nice clothes. Here was a man that was condemned to death, but his clothes were nice. So anyway, this happened on the cross that Jesus became poor that we through his grace might become rich. So let me ask you a question. Is it, is it the will of God for you to be rich? I said, is it the will of God for you to be rich? I got most of you. If, what'd you say? (laughs) She said, I'll take theirs if they don't want it. You know, it's funny. That when it comes to this idea about, you know, we don't want anything, you know, we just want to live a simple life. We, want to, we don't want to have anything lest we grieve God. And, you know, all I need is just a little small morsel here in life. You know, that only works in church. <laughs> that sentiment only makes sense when people come to church. Because as soon as they leave, man, they want theirs. I mean, when, when, when uh, pay raises pass out at work... You got how much? How come you got that much? I didn't get that much. I didn't get anything. Same people that are just like this in church, you know. Don't want anything. No, they do want something. 
People are honest. Amen. Well, is it the will of God? If Jesus, if Jesus became poor so that we could, would become rich, would it be the will of God for us to be rich? Now, again, what does rich mean? There, isn't, there is no dollar amount attached to the idea of rich. In Jesus' ministry, if he is the example of being rich, he had an abundant supply. We know that, that he had certain wealthy people that contributed to his ministry. It lists Mary Magdalene, Mary, some other, other Mary. It talks about uh, Susanna, the wife of Ch- uh, Chusa, is that right? Who was Herod's uh, 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 steward. These were people, Mary and Martha, Lazarus, these were people of means who supported Jesus in his ministry. So uh, rich is, according to the picture of Jesus, rich isn't having extravagant things. It might be in your case or my case, depending on what our assignment was. Jesus had a very specific assignment. It would not have made sense for him to have you know, a house in Capernaum and a villa somewhere else and a vacation somewhere else and, and have horses and stalls and cattle and all that stuff. That wouldn't have made sense for him. It might make sense for you. But the thing is, Rich in Jesus' ministry was having a full supply. Anything God called him to do, he was able to do it. He was able to do it in style. He was able to do it in class. And he had plenty to give to the poor. That's a rich man. Does God want his, his, his children to be rich? Yes, he does. Amen. Go with me to Philippians chapter 4. Philippians 4. I, I never realized this before. I don't know why I didn't. I just stumbled upon it. This is an interesting fact. In Galatians 4, we have the story that, that Paul, he's writing to the, to the church there at Philippi, and they had, just to give you some background, they had previously supported Paul's ministry and had contributed to him financially. But then something came up, and, and at this time Paul was in prison, and, and, uh, in his first uh, uh, imprisonment, he wrote this epistle, one called one of the, this is this and, and two others are called the prison epistles. But because of circumstances, the Philippians had not been able to continue their support. Their support had dropped off, not because they wanted it to, but he said they lacked opportunity. But then it says that uh, Epaphroditus came to him, found him in prison, and brought support from the Philippians. They made up their support. They started supporting him again. That means financially or materially. Now notice what it says. He says in verse 18, he said, Indeed, I have all and abound. I am full. Having received from Epaphroditus the things sent from you, a sweet-smelling aroma, an acceptable sacrifice, well-pleasing to God, and my God shall supply all your need according to his riches in glory by Christ Jesus. Now, that's an important promise, but I I want to point something out. He said, my God shall supply. My God shall supply. 
The Amplified says, the Amplified translation says, and my God will liberally supply, fill to the full your every need according to his riches and glory by Christ Jesus. Now, why did the Amplified Amplified Bible translate that God will liberally supply, fill to the full? Well, I found out why. The word supply, or the, the, the two words shall supply, in the original Greek, the, the verb that's used there that's translated shall supply in verse number 18 is exactly the same word that's translated I am full in verse 18. Now think about that. My God shall supply, my God shall make you full. My God shall supply. Like I said, he said according, this is how he described the supply that he had. He said, I have all and abound. I am full. That's how God supplies. I said, that's how God supplies. That's what is meant by verse number 18. My God shall liberally supply. He shall shall give you all so that you abound and are full. Isn't that, what, isn't that what he said in the previous verse? It's the very same Greek word. In fact, that word means to be rich. My God shall supply. He shall fill you to the full and meet every need you have. Notice, according to his riches in glory by Christ Jesus. God has everything you'll ever need in this life and he doesn't have a little bit of it. God has, God is rich. If you want to use, you know, think about it in that, in that light. He, God lives in a place where the streets are made of gold. Okay? God has everything you need and this verse says that my God shall liberally supply. He shall cause you to abound, to be full, to have all. And it's according to his riches and glory by Christ Jesus. That means it's not according to your circumstances. It's not according to your circumstances, according to his riches and glory by Christ Jesus. So being rich is having a full or abundant supply. Number one, to generously support the gospel. Number two, for yourself, that you'll have plenty. Number three, to help others. Well, praise the Lord. Hallelujah. Go with me. We're going to have to close, but go with me back over and I'll I'll close quickly. Go back to 2 Corinthians chapter 9. Well, praise the Lord. Well, look at verse number 11. There, there's a lot I want to say about verse 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, and 11. But I'll jump ahead just, to, just real quickly to verse 11. It says, while you are enriched in everything for all liberality. Where, while you are enriched in all things for all liberality. Now, a lot of times in English, we use the word enriched 
in, uh, in, with a lot of different connotations. You know, so-and-so, you know, your, your uh, friendship has enriched your life. You know, your, your education has enriched your life. One thing or another enriches you. And so we can, in English, we use that word that way. But in the original Greek, the word that is translated enriched, according to Vine's Expository Dictionary of New Testament Words, he said this word means to make wealthy. That's what it means. It doesn't just mean, you know, just uh, figuratively, uh, you know, just to do well. It literally means to make wealthy. While you are made wealthy in everything for all liberality or so that you can be generous. You see, when it comes to to wealth and prosperity, we we have to start with the premise that you have to have your your heart right. Because if if your passion is and your affection is on things down here, you just love things, you're not going to be able to be blessed. You're not going to be blessed. But if your heart is on the things of God, then God wants you to to uh, he wants you he, he wants you to take prosperity seriously. He wants you to embrace it because God wants to use you to be a blessing to other people. And you cannot be a blessing to other people if you if you don't have your needs met or if you barely have your needs met. And this is where a lot of people uh, are missing it when it comes to this message of prosperity. They, they think, well, they, actually they don't see themselves. A lot of people just cannot see themselves as prosperous. They just don't see it. There are a lot of reasons for that. People, people because of their background, maybe you were raised in, a, in an environment that was... You know, you didn't have much. Maybe you came from a family background. You just never had much. Your grandparents didn't have anything. That's just the way you were, you were raised. If you, you have to allow your, your, your thinking and your vision to be changed by the word of God. Because if you can't see yourself prospering, and, and I don't mean just barely get, see, a lot of people just want enough to, to, to have some things, you know, to have a house paid for, you know, when they retire, have enough money to, uh, you know, to just sort of relax a little bit, not have their nose to the grindstone, shoulder to the wheel, you know, and just struggle to make ends meet. They just want to have enough. But see, that's not a prosperous lifestyle. Because if you stay like that, you will, God will never be able to tap into what he's put into your life to bless somebody else. God wants the children of God, his people, to rise to a level where, where, where we prosper to the place that we, like the Apostle Paul said, I, I, I have received it, I, I have all, I abound, I am full. God wants us to live that way so that we can be a channel to bring that blessing to other people, to give generously into the gospel. There's somebody in this church there's somebody that attends our church that two, 
at least twice a year, at, at least once a year, sometimes twice a year, there's a person in our church that sends Christopher Allen like $5,000. This person just, you know, in addition to giving to, to uh, in the offerings for our missionaries, you know, she gives to, to Brother Allen Allen on a regular basis, but there's a couple times a year, she'll write like a $5,000 check and just, you know, I felt led to send it, Brother, Brother Allen. How many, how many people think that way? I'm just going to write a check for $5,000. The biggest check my wife and I have ever written for somebody, and this really wasn't even a ministry gift, didn't go to a minister, didn't go to, or didn't go to a ministry, didn't get a tax return on it or a tax credit, what do you call it, a tax exemption, none of that. God said, give this person $10,000. What would you do if the Lord said to you, give somebody $10,000 and you don't get a tax exemption, you don't get a tax receipt? Just give somebody $10,000. Well, it's liberating. It's liberating to obey God and just do something like that. That's very liberating. But you can't, you will not get there if you can't see yourself there. Well, I don't even want to be there. Well, stay where you are, but you'll not please God. I said, you will not be pleasing to God. I didn't say God doesn't love you. I'm not saying you're not going to heaven. I'm not saying you're not a good Christian in a general sense. I'm just saying God's not pleased with that mindset. A lot of people can't see themselves prosperous because of their status in life. They're just, you know, I am what I am. I live over here. I've got, you know, small uh, assets and, I, you know, I don't have anything fancy and I, and I never will. Well, change. Remember early on in this thing, I said, the minute you see that God wants you to prosper, the minute you get the revelation of that, you're on your way to prosperity. Soon as you see that God wants you to prosper and you agree with it and you say, yes, it's the will of God that I prosper, God then begins to see you as prosperous. And you'll start, and what do you do? There's, you know, you give. That's how you, that's how you reach the prosperity that God has, has provided for you. You give. You don't start out Given $5,000, you know, a couple of times a year to, to, to Brother Christopher. You don't start out that way. You start out by being generous with what you have. And, and according to what you have, what is generous to somebody else might be way more than you could do, but you can be generous with what you have. Some people can't see themselves as prosperous because... They have a lack of education. Well, you know, I don't have a great education. I never went to college. I didn't do this. I didn't do that. Didn't finish high school. It's according to his riches and glory by Christ Jesus. I'm telling you, if you will, if you will get your thinking straightened out and see that God wants you to be rich. Listen, you, gotta, you have got to get that thinking in your mind. God wants me to be rich. We said it. We, we read it right there. God wants me to be rich. He wants me to have enough to abound, to be full, to have an overflowing supply so that I can be generous. That's, way, that's the way God wants you to live. Well, you've got to see that. And see that it's according to his riches and glory. It's not according to you. Now, God will use the things you have and your accomplishments. But he will, he, if you exercise your faith, if you'll believe it, 
Put your faith in it and do it with the right motive. Remember it says over here in in 2 Corinthians 9, let him not give from compulsion. See, that's what's wrong with a lot of people. They give because they feel like they have to. I believe, you know, if I don't give, you know, a curse is gonna come upon me. If I don't give, you know, somebody's not gonna be happy. God's, no, that's given by compulsion. You, you get to the place where you want to give because you wanna be a blessing. If you will give with that kind of a heart on a consistent basis, you there's nothing in this world that can keep you from prospering. Your lack of education, well, I don't have the opportunity. God will create opportunity for you. God will create opportunity where there is no opportunity if you're giving in faith with the right motive, not because, not religiously. Some people have tithed all their life, but they've done it religiously and they've never received much from it because they just did it as a grudging obligation. Well, God's not gonna bless that. He blesses when we give out of a glad and cheerful heart, cheerful giving, amen. Praise the Lord. You have to have your vision expanded. Just interested in just barely enough for yourself, it just won't do. God wants you to grow your vision, grow your thinking, see that he wants you. Well, I'm retired. I'm on a limited income. Limited by who? Who limited? God didn't limit it. According to his riches in Christ Jesus doesn't sound limiting. Well, my God shall supply all your need according to your 401, your, your 501, what is it, 501K? 401K. 501, 401K. My God shall supply all your need according to your pension plan at work. According to your retirement savings. No. said, he'll meet all of your need Fill you to the full according to his riches. And I just can't, I just can't see how that'll happen. I just don't have anything and I'm, and I'm retired and I don't have steady income. Obey the Bible. Just obey the Bible in faith. Do what the Bible says. God will create opportunity. If there's breath left in your body, God can bring financial miracles into your life. Amen. Well, praise the Lord. It's true. And God wants us to prosper. He, he, he doesn't want money to control us. He doesn't want us to lust after things. But he does want us to have a vision of him providing abundantly for us so that we have all we need and we, have a, we just have money to give to every good work. Every time this, how many times have you been in a church service and somebody, you know, somebody came and guest minister or missionary and they presented their vision or there was something, you know, good work uh, that God was doing and oh man you just I'd love to give to that and then you went to your checkbook and said, I just can't afford I can, I can give $25 I'd, I'd like to give 25000 but all I got is $25 well give the 25 but expect the 25000 yeah. expect to get to that place in your life where one day you can write the big checks I've actually had people tell me before pastor I just want to, I'm looking for the day, forward to the day when I really prosper. I just, I mean, I'm just looking forward to that day when I just have money that I can just fund the gospel. Well, that's a good, that's a good desire. This one particular person I have in mind that said that to me one time, 
I've, I happen to know because you know my wife does the does the accounting in the church. They weren't faithful in tithes and offerings. He said, "I just faster." What he was saying is, one day when my ship comes in, I'm gonna be a real blessing. Well, the fact is, your ship's never coming in because with what you have. You don't honor God. You don't give liberally with what you have. Now, what you have, like I said, liberal to you or generous to you might not be generous to the next person, but God knows what you have. And if you're generous and, and do it with the right motive and do it in faith, you will begin to prosper. You'll continue to prosper until you become very prosperous. At Impact Family Church, it is our desire to see you blessed through the power of the Word of God. We have been helping people to change their world for over 25 years through our dynamic ministries and teaching. If you are going to be in the North Central Florida area and are interested in attending our services or just want more information about us, you can visit us online at www.impactfamilychurch.com.